a pox of a beer or a cold libation, let me tell you how I wrote this little thing. I went and took a call from Brother Jason, and he tells me that he has a little dream. He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast, and I ask him what you got. He said I'll start off with some talking and some moody clips and popcorn fighting, fantasy explorations and some groundless exploitation, kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxings, full month or movie marathon. Sometimes I'll let the box come on, contest and of course you know it's all about games. I said slow down, let's just start with the name. It's the Nerds RPG Variety. Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host, Jason. Today I have a fun show for you. It's the award show for the Fantasy Weapon Contest. We're going to play the entries and pick a winner. I'm going to discuss some current Kickstarters that I'm very excited about and explain the ones I'm backing currently. And then I am going to open up the mailbag and clear out a bunch of calls that have stacked up. So let's get into that Fantasy Weapon Contest award segment. Joining me again is Jason Hobbs from Hobbs and Friend and Random Screed and Twitch and all kinds of great places on the internet. And Jason, you proposed a fantasy weapons contest that we did over this past month. And we have some entries for that. And I really appreciate you come back on the show to go through those entries with me. Always a pleasure, my man. I'm excited about it, and I have to give you props for having the uh, patience to deal with my wonderful schedule. I Not a problem at all. My schedule's screwy sometimes as well, so I can <laughs> definitely appreciate that. But let, let's get into these calls, because we have some really good ones here. Uh, first up, we have Daniel Norton of the Bandits Keep Media Empire, so I'm going to play his call first. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Bandits Keep. Just finished listening to the Sword and the Sorcerer episode with the double Jason. Double helping of Jason. Very nice. Fun stuff. Love that movie. Uh, I think it's it's got so many things. I remember as a kid watching it, and we definitely had that triple sword. And uh, I was going to call in the middle of it, but I was doing something. We had the blade regenerate uh, overnight. Like, I think, you know, we probably wrote something like, by the light of the moon or something. But yeah, going to the blacksmith, that seemed interesting. But uh I guess well, I guess I'm calling in now, so I guess I'm going to enter the contest too. I will stat out that sword because why not? And I'll do it for OD and D with chainmail. Uh, I guess because that's how I'm running. I'm going off the top of my head here. I would say the sword is probably going to attack his armored foot, which would be the same as like a two-handed sword because it's magical, right? So it's going to kind of go up one level from a regular sword, from heavy foot to armored foot. And I think with as far as the blades are concerned, they would fire each one equivalent to a heavy crossbow. You'd get two shots a day. Uh, by the light of the moon, I'll, I'll keep that. Uh, you leave it out overnight, and the blades miraculously grow back. That's pretty much how I would do it. And being OD&D, only fighters would be able to use it, obviously, because that's the way OD&D is coded, so we don't have to worry too much about that. And I would go from there. So I guess for regular D&D, if I was going to do the same thing, you would do, uh, I guess, a D10 damage, as opposed to a D8 for a regular sword. And I would make, obviously, a crossbow is, what, 1D8? So each of the... Uh, the blades would shoot out and do a D8 damage if you want to do that. Again, it would regenerate uh, by the light of the moon. 
I don't think I'd give it any plus. I'm not a big fan of pluses on swords these days. I would just say it's magical, so it could affect any creature affected by magical weapons. If you're playing something like AD&D where it matters the plus on the weapon, I'd probably make it, let's say, a plus two. So, you know, as far as what it could hit. That seems reasonable, so it probably couldn't hit a god or like a super higher demon because it does break, so it's not the most powerful weapon in the world. But it could definitely hit most kind of monsters that require magical weapons to hit. So, there you go. That's my stats. I'm looking forward to the future movies uh, that you're going to go over. Cyborg. Okay. Daniel Norton. So he statted out the tri-sword from Sword and the Sorcerer, and I, I think he did a pretty good job. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I like I, I like that. I thought the interesting point there was that he doesn't like magical or plus ones to hit. Um, but then, I mean, he gave us OD&D, basic, basic D&D, and uh, AD&D. So that was a pretty good mix. I was impressed. I like the Light of the Moon thing for sure. That's neat. I don't think we ever did that. I think it was more of a, like, you had to have them manufactured or something. But I'm a, I am was a grim GM as a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what I, do you it, think, man? Well, I, yeah, I like what he did there. I So it's interesting. I run more like Barbarians of Lemuria and, and other games than D&D for, like, my fantasy, more like Grim Sword and Sorcery. And I, I see where he's come from with the plus personally because i roll horribly i have a horrible luck with dice i like pluses to my roll because that way if i'm rolling a two damage at least a plus one's gonna make it do three damage right but i i'm not a huge fan in the sword and sorcery genre not necessarily high fantasy like DD is but in the sword and sorcery genre i'm not a fan of monsters that can't be hit by normal weapons because conan's always able to somehow or another affect these monsters he fights right whether it's with his hands or his swords they might be hard to kill but I like that your heroes are able to affect a monster, even with, you know, any of their weapons or their bare hands. So, so I'm not a big fan of needing pluses to hit the monster, but because I don't I, know, man. Yeah, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I no, go ahead. Before, I was I was just reading a Conan story very recently that was actually based on a Kothar novel, uh, and it's uh, I don't know, maybe you recognize the story. It's basically he finds. He's, wa- he's wandering across the desert, finds a magician. The magician gives him this cube to take on to uh, uh, another magician or another wizard in a different town. On the way, he runs into a, a chick uh, who's being burned at the stake. Uh, does this sound familiar at all or no? Uh, yeah. Yes? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so she ends up going with them, and she was the apprentice to this other wizard who the townsfolk has, had killed, supposedly, but they have to go back to the tower to find out he was killed or not and uh there's like this mosaic ogre type of creature there and he cannot affect it with his sword nothing can affect it but fortunately the wizard had like these acid potions or something around and he throws it on him and then all the mosaic pieces fall apart so in some ways by making creatures that can't be affected uh by anything but magic it's obviously it's not anything but magic but making it harder for certain types of things it may make uh it could add that uh, adventure, I don't know, mystique or make make a great memory. Hey, remember that monster we fought that we had to like find all the acid in the guy in the alchemist cupboard to kill as opposed to using our weapons? I don't know. I, this is totally off the topic kind of but no, well no, but I think it's a good point. And and actually so to clarify, I'm okay with monsters that you need to do something special to be able to take them out, right? Like I've run I've put monsters in my games before where you've got to hit them in the heart or you've got to shoot that third eye out or something like that. So so I'm okay with that, that, having some kind of Achilles heel 
And so your normal sword, or you're not doing damage, but then you have to figure out what the monster's weakness is. I, I just aren't a big fan of, well, it's a plus three weapon or higher to hit it. You, you know, because then once your characters get those high weapons, they just wade through everything, kind of. You, well, not everything, because you as a GM can throw things at them. But you you know what I mean. I do. I kind of like I like what you said there, too, because that that is making them think. Anytime you can make players think, I think the more they're going to enjoy the adventure, unless they're just there for a beer and pretzels game, obviously. Yeah, wait, wait, and there's nothing wrong with that either, definitely. No, 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 absolutely not. Okay, so so our next entry is another really thoughtful one. We're going into depth. This is Joe Richter of Hindsightless. He used to GM the very first Pathfinder 2 homebrew podcast, Wheel or Woe. And they because of COVID, they stopped doing it. It's kind of a shame because with all this current kerfuffle going on, they'd be huge right now if they were key, <laughs> still putting their podcast out, their actual play out. But I'm, I'm going to play Joe's call now. Yo, Jason, calling in for Hobbs's design your favorite fantasy weapon or sci-fi weapon from a movie contest. I'm doing it. And since I'm going to be designing it for a system, I got to go with Pathfinder First Edition because it's the only one I know well enough to let me do something like this. So here we go. I'm going with the Glaive from Kroll, which I don't know, probably a lot of people will because it's such an iconic weapon. But what I have here is the Glaive in Pathfinder First Edition. It is a plus three dancing distance returning keen star knife. <laughs> so let me break that down. Plus three, obvious. Plus three to attack and damage for whoever uses it. Great, no problem. Keen, um, keen lets it have a much better chance of getting a critical hit, so dealing a bunch of more damage, because a star knife in and of itself doesn't deal all that much damage. It's just a D4, so we gotta boost that damage up, which the plus three will help with. Um, returning obviously says what it does on the tin, because in Crawl, when he throws the glaive, it comes back to him, so you gotta have returning, because star knife is a returning weapon. Um, um, sorry, Distance lets him throw it farther because in crawl, he throws that thing pretty far sometimes. Normally with a thrown weapon, the range inc increment is 20 feet, and then every 20 feet past, you take more, uh, you take penalties. But with distance, it lets you double that so he can throw it 40 feet without taking any penalties. And then dancing lets you do what he does at the end of the movie crawl. Spoilers for the end of the movie crawl. He fights a big bad guy. Uh, who saw that coming? <laughs> but in that, you know, he, he hucks the glaive and then he like controls the glaive while it's still like attacking the bad guy. So that's what dancing would let you do. And, uh, that works out to a total of a plus 10 weapon, which is the highest you can have in Pathfinder. And something like that would cost you a cool 200,000 gold pieces. So no problem, man. There you go. I'm excited to hear what everybody else comes up with. Thanks. Hobbs for putting out a fun contest. Thanks, Jason, for hosting it. And I will talk to everybody soon. Peace out. Wow. Talk about a good entry, huh? Nice. Plus 10, man. I don't know. I, I would be curious to know. Like, I don't know anything about Pathfinder. I've played it in a uh, play by post game ran by Carl Rodriguez way back in the day. But uh, I'm curious, like, how, because it doesn't sound super powerful but really cool at the same time interesting it makes me always think about what i would do what about you what do you think about it 
I thought it was cool. I, I like that he even comes up with a price at the end, you know, the, how much <laughs> it would cost to buy it and what it's worth. <laughs> like so. in the collector's shop or something. Right, yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm currently playing in a Pathfinder 1 game that Joe's running. We're running through the Wrath of the Righteous Adventure. Uh, what do you call it? Adventure Path. And we're at the end of the second book of that, and there's six books. And it's taken us a year to get through two books, so we have another couple of years to go. But we're having a lot of fun. Joe, Joe knows Pathfinder. He's he's really good with that system. Um, but yeah, I thought he did a great job. And you know, he it it, it makes me want to go see Crawl again. I mean, it, which is a great movie too. You know, a lot of fun. Yes. So Joe is so, actually so sorry, real quick. So this all came about because you joined my show to talk about Sword and the Sorcerer. Joe is actually joining me here this month in February, and we're going to be talking about Cyborg. So that episode's coming up. So well, that's what uh, that's what Daniel wanted too. So that's awesome. Yeah, I, I got to ask you. So I don't know what level you are at this point, but how do you feel as if you had Krolls or you know the Glaive? Would you be happy with it at that level, or is there something more powerful or something? Or what did you think about it? No, I would be so we're I think we're seventh level right now. And um I I'd be happy with so my character is actually a, a dwarven monk and he's like a specialized monk that does grappling. And I don't have any which I don't think he could use the glaive anyway, the way the rules are, but or maybe he could, but I I don't know, because I don't use any weapons. He just you know, I use my, my hands are all the weapons I need. But um but he I um, am the weapon. Yeah, he is the weapon. But I'll tell you what. One thing Joe throws against me that that foils me a lot are flying creatures because he's a smart mm -hmm. GM. Not just against me, but against the party, you know. And um, and I don't have any way, you know. My dwarf can't jump up thirty feet in the air and attack, grab a flying creature. So having the glaive kind of monk is he? <laughs> well, because yeah, the they, dancing they part makes it. Yeah. Oh yeah. The dancing part's cool. Yeah, that's what almost makes that. I think. Yeah. So yeah, I would love I, Joe if you want to give me the the glaive and in pathfinder i'll definitely take it i'd love that but so so far we have daniel's character a fighter in od and d using the tri sword and now you know we have uh a dwarf monk using a uh the glaive weapon so i can't wait to see what this other adventuring party yeah. <laughs> well, well so here what's interesting is of the entries we have we have one more that's i'll let you decide on, on this whether this 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 is a true entry or not so so i'll i'm, I'm gonna play this next call but everybody picked different items which is really oh neat. awesome yeah yeah so so this next call is from carl rodriguez of the geomologist presents and i do owe you a um a entry to the contest i know what the entry will be it will be the iconic gun axe from world of warcraft but i haven't decided if i'm going to use like a 3.0 slash 5e OGL rule system to define it or Warhammer Fantasy. Um, so I'll have to call back for that. Sadly, Carl never did call back with an actual completed entry, but I, you're a nice guy sometimes, not, not necessarily <laughs> as a GM. So, so you'll have to decide if that counts as an entry or not. <laughs> uh, I think it counts, but I want to actually see, I want to see, I think he still has to send us the statistics, even though he didn't call back. I, I agree. Email or figure it out or whatever. But uh, I don't even. Re I played a little bit of World of Warcraft, and I don't even remember the. Is it a handgun with a, is it an axe, or is it like a musket? You know, I I I've never played World of Warcraft. I've played 
there was a card game that, that I played a little bit, and there's a big board game, like a big box board game of World of Warcraft they put out like 15 years ago. They came with like hundreds of pieces, and the board was like <laughs> like three by five or something crazy. I played that, but I, I've never played the video game, so I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I played it a little bit when it was free, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't remember that. But he I know he is definitely a a wow aficionado. Yeah. So so Carl I think he's in for sure. In. Yeah. Okay. Carl, send us those stats. And and then the last call here is another one from Daniel. And and this isn't necessarily another entry, but but he he's got a question. So I'm gonna play that and um and, and then we can discuss. It has become abundantly clear that I cannot cut, stop calling your show. <laughs> this is what happens when I'm driving a long way. But I think I, I know, in fact, I know that I already called in with one weapon, but you're talking about the contest. But I wonder if anybody's going to call in and set out Excalibur, right? Now, I know it's, well, fantasy or science fantasy. Excalibur is really an interesting weapon, right? Because I think that a lot of people treat it as a sort of sharpness. not quite sure where, I, where that comes from. But I would also give it some additional powers, like maybe detect evil uh, or in, or maybe some kind of protection uh, from evil kind of spell, kind of like the way paladins have that uh, that deal going on. And with the with the, and it would be obviously an intelligence sword by D and D standard, and it would hopefully uh, uh, prevent you from doing evil uh, deeds. So uh, that's another one you could do uh, any caliber. That'd be really interesting. I'm, I'm curious if somebody does that one or not. Yeah, sadly, nobody did Excalibur. I don't know if I'd have it stop you from doing evil deeds. I do think I know where some of this comes from. I don't know. You remember back in the day, Mayfair was putting out various RPG products, and they had a, a, a supplement called Fantastic Treasures, and they had a one and two. And they had Excalibur in there, and I've got it. And, um, mm. and, and so in that, Excalibur was a plus five sword of sharpness. It gave plus five to the appeal. Or these are like generic terms because they were not trying not to get sued by TSR. But so it gave plus 25% on morale rolls. Uh, any character class that grabs that has a chance to become a paladin when grasping it the first time. The scabbard, which the scabbard of Excalibur is really cool. It's a magic item of itself. A lot of people forget that. But in in myth, you couldn't die as long as you had the Excalibur scabbard. It would heal you. And so what Mayfair did is the scabbard keeps you from dying. It keeps you at one hit point as long as you have this Excalibur drawn and, and you have the scabbard on you. And then um, the other thing it does is it, it just counts as a Holy Avenger, a plus five paladin Holy Avenger. Oh, that's all. Yeah, that's all. But um, yeah, th these books, Fantastic Treasures, you you have to find them on the used market. There's no legal PDS of any of these things anymore, which is a shame, but they're, they're really cool. They had painted cover covers, which are really awesome covers. And they did, they didn't do movie stuff, but they did like myth mythological weapons and things were all in there, and they're they really cool. So, well worth. Yeah, finding that sounds. It. Yeah, that sounds like a cool product. I don't know if I owned it or not. I remember Mayfair, Roll Age, mm -hmm. yeah, all those, all those old school. I don't know for third party things that came out that people called splat books that got complained about them at the time, and now we're like, oh, I wish I still had that. <laughs> right. And, right. And, you know, those were for AD&D first edition. So splat books aren't a D20 thing or, you, you, you know, that a, the, splat I books go it. way back. Yeah. Splat books go way back. <laughs> no well, problem. I mean, you could argue that like all the things that people put out were splat books from, you know, for other systems like the Arcanum and whatever mm -hmm. from the early days, really. Yeah, definitely. So Warlock. We, 
Mm -hmm. So we've got our entries. So, so what do you think? How, how, how do you want to adjudicate this, Judge Hobbs? Well, you know, in this day and age, I think that everyone should deserve a participation trophy without question. <laughs> Am I doing the same thing someone else did? No, I don't no, know, no, but... no. You're, you're good. <laughs> so, and uh, as far as, you know, PDFs, I, I don't even know if anybody has them, but I will certainly send all three of my PDFs to all three people. I'm not sending it twice to Daniel, though. Um, <laughs> uh, I could, though. I would say I could send it to him, and he can choose who it goes to if he wants. So, uh, honestly, I think it's just fun to be talking about our hobby in a way that could help everybody and getting everybody engaged in something that could actually be beneficial to anyone's game, really. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just kind of a fun thing. That's why I kind of wanted to do it, and it actually came out – I mean, there wasn't a massive amount of participation, but it obviously got a few people thinking about, you know, if you were going to use this type of weapon and add it to your game, like we probably would have done when we were kids. Right. I don't know if we do it as much now, but we, we definitely do it more kids. Hey, I made a, uh, my, uh, tinker type character. There's a different name for it for low fantasy gaming. We uses a crossbow, but he's on crutches. So, I wanted him to be able to have like a repeating crossbow. Like, I don't know if you remember from Oriental Adventures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's what I had him make. So I'm still making kind of like goofy items that aren't necessarily magical as a player, not only as a GM, as a GM, I love making things that aren't necessarily magical. Like a really cool item in uh, OSE or BX is if you could have the armor class of a heavy armor, but only be light and still have the movement. So like mm -hmm. it's a super well-made lamellar armor or something like that. There's a lot of just, like you said earlier, I guess, off screen, such a, so many cool different things that you can do as a GM with with equipment or weapons or armor, however you want to call it, that not only attack the GM uh, character sheet as a GM, but help the character sheet. So it's not only AC or maybe a hit points or whatever. There's all these different things that can include uh, help your carrying capacity or your movement rate or just a lot of different things that you can do that uh, really uh, can expand exponentially your game. No, I, I agree. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to, um, maybe we'll revisit this in the future because this kind of content is what I love seeing podcasts do is put out content people can use and whether they use that content directly in their games or like you say, it spurs them to think to create their own. But as opposed to us just talking about, this is what's going on in the RPG hobby, you, you know, actually yeah. giving people content as opposed to just, you, you know, being pundits talking about things. So, yeah, I, I think that's well, a valuable service. That's I love do. I, I try to almost always have a piece of that in random screed mm -hmm. where it's actually like something that happened in a game or I went through that. Hey, I want you to think about this. And other than that, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I should add that uh, if anyone's ever heard of Hex Talk before, all three of the Hex Talk hosts, me, Jose Lacario, and Eric Hoffman, are going to be at North Texas. Oh, awesome. Year. And we are sponsoring our own room. So we're going to have Forlorn, Shore game, Forlorn Shores games, which is our setting that we had a multi-GMs. And, uh, and it's going to be running. All, we're going to have all the different GMs. So it wasn't just us. Thaddeus Moore, Paul Wolf, Cody Mazza, uh, Paul's son, Lucas are all going to be there and we're going to be running games in our room and it's going to be 
during the whole con, you can get into a Forlorn Shores game if you want to play Hex Crawl with the Hex Talk guys. That's amazing. Yeah, so Northern R- Northern Texas RPG Con, a great old school convention, OSR convention. Folks, go, get into that. You know, it. all you got, just Google that. You'll find it, you know, and, and you can sign up now. So tickets are available. Check it out. That's right. I'm hoping to have a free, I'm hoping to have another product out by then. I don't know if it'll be the Sin Eater, the Scenarium of the Sin Eater or whatever, but we'll have all of our own products in there. So Paul Wolf has his, Eric Hoffman has his new imprint, because uh, Stormlord Publishing is no more, but he has a new imprint called uh, Castellan Gaming, which is named after his blog, uh, the Castellan's blog. If you've never looked at it, he's got some really cool stuff from you know 2003 or 2009 or something like that in that area mm-hmm. era when he was writing it so uh lots of cool opportunities to hang out with us if that's what you want to do in north texas is there's all the there's a lot of awesome people there and it's a low-key type of con and you know 500 people max so. excellent so folks definitely check that out thank you so much for coming on and thank you to everybody that sent an entry in and carl we look forward to your um finish statting out of the gun axe yeah gun axe sounds awesome okay Jason. <laughs> i'm like thinking about all these things and i'm like don't have anything to say thank you yeah. so much for having me like i say i appreciate your patience uh for with my schedule my man not not a problem at all folks check out all the things jason talked about and jason i will talk to you soon take care all right thanks so much jason Okay, let's talk about some Kickstarters. The current Kickstarters I am backing, I am mainly backing from people I know or things I've backed in the past, but Burn 2D6 by Saltheart RPG is now live. It's a really interesting, kind of simple generic system that's great for pickup games, but it also has some depth for ongoing campaigns from multiple genres, so check that out. We have Carpus and... In the Heart of Oz by Goblin's Henchman. And these are two existing products that now you can get print copies of. Really cool. They use Goblin Henchman's Hexflower concept. Really, really great products. Darkness in the Demimond by Raven God Games by Joe Salvador, uh, who runs the Reaver Sword and Sorcery playtest that I'm in. You can go get a copy of Reaver, pay what you want on Drive Through RPG. There'll be a Kickstarter for that later. But this Kickstarter that I'm linking in the show notes is a Victorian pulp horror game, and it's pretty neat, so I recommend you check that out. It is um, based around Tunnel Goons, if you're familiar with that. Dungeon Degenerates, Hand of Doom. This is a board game. Uh, Dungeon Degenerates has been out for a while now, the game system. I bought it back when it first came out. This is the fifth printing of it. Uh, it comes in miniatures you can paint. It's got a lot of expansions. It works really well as a solo game or a co-op game. It is kind of a dark uh, genre. You're kind of playing criminals and, well, degenerates. But the art style's kind of like that um, kind of punk aspect. What, what's the term? Like, like rat, like rat fink kind of art, if you know what I'm talking about. Go check it out. See what it is. Um, I actually really like this board game. And the last one I'm going to 
plug is Nicomedian's Tower, done by M.W. Lewis, who has the World's M.W. Lewis podcast. This is an adventure primarily for AD&D First Edition, but you can run it with pretty much any kind of fantasy game. It's a neat little side quest your characters can go on, and it's designed for lower-level characters. It's pretty fun. So those are the Kickstarters I wanted to back, that I am backing, that I wanted to bring your attention to. Now, let's get into that mailbag. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's scream is coming from inside the house. Hey Jason, it's Rob. I'm just uh, testing to see if this message function still works in my Anchor app. It appears to be, but I really don't know if it's still working. Would you mind DMing me on Discord if you get it? Thanks. Hey Rob, it does still work. That's very cool. That's Rob from over at Down the Heap. Most recently he's been doing a deep dive into the OSE advanced options, the advanced fantasy options, whatever exactly they call it um and he's doing a great job of that so go check out down heap there's a link in the show notes there'll be a link to all my callers in the show notes by the way but rob took the bold strategy of not updating his anchor app when the anchor apocalypse happened and they removed the ability to make calls through the app rob said i'm just not going to update my app and apparently that's still working for him very cool i think daniel over at bandits keep tried to do the same thing but his app automatically updated on him Maybe one's on Apple, one's on Android, I'm not sure. But, yeah, cool beans. I, by the way, I did reach out to Rob the day he sent me that message, but I thought I would share that to show everybody else that, you know, some people actually can still message, send messages through the Anchor app. Let's move on to our next caller. Hi, Jason. This is Decahedron Joe. I heard your recent episode... Sadly, I was driving at the time, so I can't remember who is that left the feedback, but they were leaving feedback about the Doraini Adventure game, which was mentioned on an earlier episode you did. If I heard right, that caller said that he had playtested Doraini, and so I'm wondering if he was on the old Fudge mailing list, the list that was run by Carl Cravens and Andrew Pui, the owner of Grey Ghost Games, was on it, as was uh, Stephen O'Sullivan, the guy who wrote Fudge. And I used to be on that mailing list, and it just would be kind of fun to know that, you know, we're kind of crossing paths, you know, two old fudge mailing listers uh, on your podcast. I don't have anything to say about Doraini, unfortunately, because I was never familiar with the product. So when they mentioned it on the mailing list, I didn't feel I was qualified to join and help in any way. But if I, if you will indulge me, I would like to share a quick little story uh, that also came out of the mailing list. One day... And published the list that Rick Loomis from Flying Buffalo contacted her, and he was doing a reprint of Grimtooth's Traps 2. He had extra pages at the end because the way, you know, they changed the folio sizes, and he wanted to know if Anne could fill it with some fudge content. And she said that she was looking for some people, and I immediately jumped on it. I said, yes, I have Grimtooth's Traps 2. I would love to do this. And I told her my idea about how I would handle it. And she said, yeah, that's great. You can do it. Uh, another guy volunteered. I believe his name was Brett Sanger. 
And so we divided up the traps and we each worked on them. We, we went with my idea and uh, I wrote the poison rules for fudge. Fudge never had poison rules before because why would it? You would just fudge it. But I sent seeing those rules pop up in uh, another printing of fudge. So that gives me a warm fuzzy. And uh, if you pick up the 2016 or later or the Goodman Games reprint of Grimtooth's Traps 2, uh, you will see on the back an article called Grimtooth's Traps and Fudge. And the byline is, you know, by Andrew Pui, by me, and by Brett Sanger. I really hope that's his name. So I actually have a writing credit in Grimtooth's Traps 2. Does that give me old school cred? Would it be new school because it's, it's fudge cred? Question mark? Or would it just be geek cred? Or maybe it's nothing at all. Anyway, I just wanted to share that story. Thanks a lot. Bye. Hey, Joe, that gives you old school and geek cred with me. That's very, very cool. So Joe does the Decahedron RPG podcast, and he has a co-host, James, and they do a great job together. Highly recommend it. There's a link in the show notes. That's a really neat story. Thank you for sharing that. As far as the other caller you were mentioning, I think they're on the line now. Hi, Jason. It's Anthony. Deep in the darkness as I make my way through the frigid mountains of South Korea. I wanted to thank you for your apology about kind of fading out, hopefully temporarily, from the Corporea play-by-post game that we're doing on Discord. Um, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, You didn't just up and disappear or anything. You You let me know that you were getting busy, and then you let me know that you were getting even more busy. And, you know, then you checked in and, you know, made sure that I knew that you were, you know, following along and, and you were hoping to be able to post soon, but you didn't. So which means that your your hopes were dashed on the rocks of disappointment and scheduling. And, you know, it's just a part of, of life. So I think you did everything pretty much as well as could be expected in that environment. Uh, what drives me crazy is when players just vanish. You have no idea uh, if they're even reading the posts. So, you know, don't worry. I appreciate uh, the gesture, but uh, but don't pick on yourself too badly. You're not. And at that point, Anthony's message cut off. <laughs> I, I have a, like a minute of silence. So I know he was saying something else, but I'm not sure exactly what. Luckily, he did call in again. Hey, Jason, it's Anthony, calling in response to your question about contests and whether or not you should keep running them and why people, well, why I may or may not participate in a contest. And so I thought, you know, all right, I think what what you do on your show has to be satisfying for you. And one of the requirements that it's for it to be satisfying for you is that it's engaging, you know, in that way for the audience. You know, more power to you. But uh, for me, um, you know, I'm, I'm once again calling from the car because this is really uh, the place where I have uh, the most ability to listen to podcasts and then respond. But since the anchor apocalypse, uh, even though uh, you are fantastic about including 
links in the show notes for you know things like SpeakPipe, which uh, which is probably the most convenient for me to use. Um, the audio quality on SpeakPipe is terrible, and it's several extra steps. You know where I used to be able to just you know make sure the screen was on and leave a message and still drive safely. Now I have a number of other hoops uh, to go through in order to be able to to leave a message. So that's that's one thing that makes me put off responding to a con- At this point, SpeakPipe, which he used for both messages, decided to reinforce his point, and I have another period of a minute and a half of silence. So let's jump to the end of that. Out of things, too. So anyway, that's the... Uh, those are my two cents broadcast live from South Korea. <laughs> anyway, take care. I was able to reach out to Anthony on Discord, and we chatted back and forth some. I do feel bad. So the first part of that those calls, I was in a play-by-post he was running, and then life got in the way, and I kind of dropped out of it. And I did communicate a little bit that things were getting hectic, and I haven't checked back in, and, and I really should. I mostly because I'm embarrassed <laughs> about it with the other players, but but I am going to do that. Um, but I, I didn't totally just space them. I, I said, hey, I'm getting busier. I'm probably not going to post, but still, I, I kind of go sit them in, in my mind, so I do feel bad about that. The part about SpeakPipe not doing well, obviously these messages prove that, that none of, this, none of these methods are ideal, and Anchor really kind of screwed us hard. Well, Spotify kind of screwed us hard by removing the ability to send a message through the Anchor app. It is a lot harder to send the message any of these other methods. The Anchor app was just so, so convenient. But, uh, you know, it, it is what it is, and the one constant life has changed, so we have to deal with that. Um, Anthony, I do appreciate the calls very much. And as far as the contests, yeah, I, I don't know. I also received some feedback in other mediums where they said, yeah, we want you to continue the contests. But as you could tell from today's contest award show, there haven't been very many entries in the latest contest. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. Now, the next set of calls have to do with my last System Sunday where I talked about solo gaming. So let's get into those. Jason, it's Evil Jeff. Hey, just listen to your latest podcast with the solo gaming options and everything. Appreciate you putting that together. Uh, a couple things in there I probably will give a look at. I already have Scarlet Heroes, so I definitely was already going to try that. Might do the D100 gaming thing that you also talked about, so we'll see how that works out. I might wait for you to experience it and tell me what you think. But other than that, uh, appreciate all the hard work you're putting in and uh, all the calls, and we'll catch up with you later. Hey Jason, the Pink Phantom here. Uh, was listening to your episode about solo RPGs. I wanted to chime in with uh, Parts Per Million Games on uh, Drive Through RPG and Itch. Uh, he puts out a lot of solo RPG oracles or 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 play uh, materials for specific games. He designs them for specific games, and it's something that. Uh, I picked up and seen, and I've heard a lot of people who have used them say that they're very useful. Uh, he does have a YouTube channel where he puts out 
advice on playing solo little snippets i cannot for the life of me think of what it's called it's not a parts per million related anything it's something with solo or solo rpg in it but uh doing a search trying to find it i couldn't find it but i i wanted to uh, just add that to the conversation as a good resource for people looking to uh do some solo rpgs especially if they're trying to use a specific game system Hey Jason, the Pink Phantom here. Uh, I ran across the YouTube page for the guy that does the parts per million uh, solo rules for various different RPG systems. It's Diary of an Indie Game Developers. Diary of an Indie Game Developers. So that was something I just ran across and I wanted to pass that on to you in reference to my last call-in. Hey, Jason, how are you? This is Kevin calling, the creator of Burn2D6, and I was listening to your solo RPG system Sunday. Really enjoyed it. And although I don't have a, a solo part of the game, I was wondering if you could recommend a really system agnostic uh, solo, I guess, guide or solo RPG guide so anyone could play any system and get those types of encounters uh, that they need for a system. But that's it. Uh, system agnostic solo RPG guys. Thanks, Jason. Okay, a series of calls there from Evil Jeff of Minions and Musings podcast, Pink Phantom of Phantom Thoughts, and Kevin from Saltheart RPG is doing Burn 2D6 currently on Kickstarter that I talked about earlier in the show. So, yeah, D100 Dungeons is something I'm looking at. I It's very procedural, which is my style more than narrative, so that does fit the, the sweet spot for me. But before I do that, I'm going to kind of do what Daniel over at Bandit's Keep is doing on his Bandit's Keep actual play YouTube channel, using OD&D, Chainmail, and Outdoor Survival to run a solo game. Go check out that series if you haven't. It's a really good series. And I think that's the first thing I'm going to dabble with personally. But D100 Dungeons is something I'm probably going to pick up in the next month or so and, and get serious about looking at it as well. So thank you for those calls. As far as Kevin's question about a good system agnostic tool, I talked with Kevin a little bit on Discord, but I think it really depends. Are you looking for more, are you more of a narrative gamer or more of a procedural gamer? Because that's really going to depend which way you go here. Some of these tools are very narrative, as in, well, not just yes, no, or yes, but, or yes, and, but they also have different ways to prompt things, help prompt your creativity, be they things like Rory's Story Cubes, or, or there's a system where you, like, pick a novel, you, you know, what it, typically whatever genre or game you're playing, but it doesn't have to be, and you'll just page Ramley through a page of that novel, pick it up, read a passage, and use that as a story prompt. You, you know, there, there are different ways to do it. And so I really think you have to decide, are you a procedural gamer or a narrative gamer? Or you have to play a little bit of each to see which way you, you fall to answer that correctly. Um, and, and actually, I say correctly, but the answer is going to be a little different for everybody, right? Um, the interesting thing is now with, with AI coming online, although I'm going to resist it as a Luddite, I do think AI has a place here with solo RPGs, and AI has a serious place replacing random tables and random generators. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops over the next coming years. Um, there are a couple things I would recommend to you, Kevin, it to, and sadly there's some 
some legwork involved in this. But as far as YouTube, uh, my buddy Arlen Walker over at Live From Pelham's Wasteland has played a number of games solo over on his channel, YouTube channel. I guess, I think they're still up. You, you have to go look. Maybe all those solo plays are still up. But he's done solo play with a variety of systems, everything from Against the Dark Master, which Kevin has written modules for. If you go to Salt Heart RPG on Drive Through RPG, you'll find some Against the Dark Master stuff that's very good. I would highly recommend that. But I would recommend that. And then also James Schrall's um, podcast, which is Subclass Act, where he goes through this season, he's just doing Traveler. But if you go to the previous seasons, he bounced around and used a number of different game systems and different oracles. And you can kind of see how he's do doing with different things. So it kind of lets you see different things in action. Now, both those are going to require watching videos or listening to, eat, to podcasts. I actually haven't done a ton of solo gaming personally, so it's hard for me to give solid recommendations. But hopefully those will give you some clues on which way to head. And I welcome other people to call in with a recommendation, a system agnostic recommendation for a more procedural player and a system agnostic, rep uh, a system agnostic recommendation for a more narrative player. So I look forward to receiving those calls as well. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Manus. Keep calling in as I'm driving, trying to catch up on some podcasts. Uh, Covert Ops seems really cool. I'm with you. You know, it's, it's nice to have the nostalgia for the old games, and I definitely love Top Secret, but it is great to support creators who are doing stuff now. So that's pretty awesome. I'll look into that. I love the three-book idea. I don't know. You know, I'm not a huge fan, as we talked about before, like giant rule books. For some reason, they just, just something that turns me off from them currently. <laughs> Although, I'm sure that might change again. I love the idea of, uh, you know, smaller books that are just more, you know, focused, let's say, and then, you know, if you want to add the extra book, you can. So that's very cool. It looks like something I'll probably put in my wish list to pick it up. So uh, thanks for talking about that. Daniel, thank you for that call, the first of many we're going to have today. <laughs> um, I Yeah, I mean, I love the old systems. I really do. And it's not just nostalgia. It's just something about these older systems that draws me, even the ones I didn't play back in the day. Like, I didn't play ODD back in the day, but I'm really drawn to it, you know. But that said, there is something to supporting creators that are currently making content, and I think that's important. So this year, I'm going to concentrate on... I'm still going to do od and I'm still going to do Food Hill but I am going to push more towards creators making new content. You know, I, I do think that's important. So Covert Ops is the next spy game I do plan on running. I'm going to skip Chop Secret SI, and I'm going to do Covert Ops instead. The other thing that they do, and you may hear this, I wasn't going to do an unboxing, but you can hear maybe me doing that, is I ordered from DriveThruRPG the fantasy version of covert ops so and actually this predates covert ops i believe but this is bare bones fantasy by dwd delta whiskey delta studios and it, it this is by larry moore and bill logan so i'm gonna and this daniel i think you would like bare bones fantasy it's only 78 pages it's a small digest size book pretty thin um <laughs> nice co color cover and black and white interior art but it's the same basic system. I will do a system Sunday on Bare Bones Fantasy. I'll go into more detail because I've got complaints that I didn't go in enough detail covert ops and did it a disservice. So, in fact, along with this, in this package from Lightning Source, I also have 
Operation Arctic Storm, which is an adventure for covert ops. <laughs> so I, I am planning on running covert ops here soon. If you're interested in playing in a spy game, folks, re reach out and let me know. But so, yeah, I am looking forward to supporting new creators. But let's go on. Daniel's got uh, one or two more calls. In fact, that follow-up call you heard on the fantasy weapons section was part of the series of calls, but I took it out and put it with that because it placed better there. But never fear, more Daniel coming up. Hey Jason, Daniel from Man's Keep calling in. I'm listening out of order, so I just listened to your solo thing because obviously solo is something I'm interested in. Uh, thanks for the shout out. You know, I have Mythic both the GM emulator and the game. I don't know, for me, maybe my brain just couldn't wrap around it properly, but I, I tried to play it multiple times, read it through it, it just didn't make sense to me, so maybe I need to watch some videos on that. But Scarlet Heroes, I can't recommend enough. I had a friend that was part of our regular group that went away to school this is several years back when we were running 5e, and they wanted to keep playing, so I basically started a solo campaign with them. Well, not solo, one-on-one, -on -one, duet, uh, with them basically playing on Zoom. And we used Scarlet Heroes so they could use their same single character and we played through, just like you said, you can play through these old modules, and it actually, like, that's what the rules seem to be for. You don't have to, like, make up stuff that works for a solo person. The additional stuff they add to it just really makes it work. So Scarlet Heroes is great. I didn't even realize there was a solo uh, mode there. I'll have to check that out because uh, I really, really like that game. Uh, as far as the other ones, I have not tried them, but they seem interesting. I'll, I'll have to check those out. I'm definitely much more of a procedural person than a narrative person when I'm playing solo, so I think that, you know, that's where I'd lean, so that D100 dungeon looks pretty interesting. So, thanks for the show. Talk to you soon. Hey, Daniel. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Scarlet Heroes. I think it's a great system for duet gaming for one GM, one player, and it, it also has solo rules in there. You know, they're not super, super detailed, but they're plenty to play a fantasy game, and they're easily modifiable to a non-fantasy game. So, if you're doing a level class system, then Scarlet Heroes by Kevin Crawford is well, well worth looking into. Not to mention that world that he has built around there with Red Tide and, and all that. It's kind of a, a, a faux kind of Far East kind of setting. Um, it is really interesting, and I, you know, I really like that world. So I would just role play in that world if I was going to use that system. But it's very applicable for other, you know, for modifying for other areas and other genres as well. D100 Dungeons does look very interesting as a procedural game, and if you hadn't been tempting me with OD&D solo, I would, that would be my next stop. Now it's maybe my second to next stop, I don't know. But let me turn the mic back over to Daniel. Hey Jason, Daniel from Band of Keep, uh, still catching up with the podcast. Uh, by the way, I, of course, I got a little early notice from you that about uh, Joe Salvador's uh, Kickstarter, I jumped right in, so I did get one of those... Uh, limited edition uh, version, so hopefully you did too. That's pretty awesome. And, uh, yeah, it will already come out by the time I'm sure you play this, but uh, th today, which is Sunday, is the, uh, my podcast should go live with our conversation. And you were just talking about DaveCon. I remembered, as you were saying that, that I'm running Boot Hill at Gen Con. So this will be very exciting to get our uh, house rules out into the wild and see what the, uh, the folks out there think of them. So I will continue to listen to the Colin Show. Okay, I probably won't break into every message, but there is a lot to talk about in these. Um, yes, Daniel's recording of my talk with him about Boot Hill has been released, so go to Danny Norton's podcast. It's linked in the show notes, and his latest episode is an hour-long discussion 
uh, Boot Hill House Rules. Very cool. I'm glad he put that out. And as far as Joe Salvador, I talked about his game, his Kickstarter earlier, but there are still some of those limited edition prints left as of time of this recording. So, okay, back to Daniel. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Redis Keep. Uh, calling in. I, I'm going backwards, like I said. So, well, I guess I don't really have to say that in these messages because you could have just played them in the other order. But too late now. It's been a reveal. So, um, talking about Biastrocon and that, that you just talked about your AD&D game, which I already knew about from a previous thing, but you know, I love the Unarmed Combat in AD&D, so I had to call in and say I'm glad that, that, you know, since you're playing as close as possible to rules written, that you're using that system because uh, yeah, I love that Unarmed Combat system. It's so weird but just so cool if you get it. And honestly, if you get the math up front, like a lot of your bonuses and stuff is kind of written down in your character sheet, it's not that clunky, um, especially for pummeling. I think when you get into overbearing, maybe even grappling, it starts to factor in how much you weigh, and that can be a little bit, uh, you know, a little math on the fly, but uh, for pummeling especially, it's not too bad. Anyways, uh, I see that you're about to talk about my game, so hopefully you say something uh, excellent and good. Um, otherwise, I'll be sad, and I'll talk to you soon. Ah, you said good things, so now I'm happy. I have a big smile on my face. You know, it's funny um, when you think about it, because, right, Unchained is more or less just kind of a tweaked version of using effectively a miniatures, uh, a miniatures game, right? And so is Boot Hill. But both of those games, I find that I have some of the most kind of narrative, interactive role-playing that I have in any games I play. And I wonder why. I wonder if it is that there's just so few rules beyond the combat that you're just kind of, I don't want to say forced, because that sounds negative, but kind of forced <laughs> to have to just, like, role-play out and explain everything you're doing because there's really not rules for a bunch of other stuff. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm really enjoying it. So I, I do appreciate you uh, suggesting that. i got to get that more to the table. It's so fun to just sit down with somebody and have them make the character on the spot. It's just a really fun way to play and pick up games. So thanks again. And, uh, oh, and I see you mentioned Joe's breath. All right, just, you know... That campaign sounds so cool. So, uh, you know, it makes, me, it makes me want to rethink some of the uh, adventure paths in Pathfinder. Uh, you know, look at them again with a new eye because I know I looked at a few and I didn't really, like, love the way they were laid out, but that one just sounds so cool uh, when Joe's talking about it. So, anyways, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Aha! Flippers of Spider Climb. So good. You know, <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite magic items. And more or less how I was able to uh, defeat, without giving any spoilers, the Tomb of Horrors. Flippers of Spider Climb are more powerful than you would ever imagine. Give me that a 10-foot pole, and I'll take on any dungeon. <laughs> hey, just to cut in here real quick. Yeah, I had a lot of fun playing Unchained. I look forward to playing that again. We'll have to schedule that. As far as the Boots of Spider Climb, that's a item my dwarf monk. Is it Tatori? Tatori? Joe will call in and correct me. That I'm playing in... Joe Richter of Hindsightless's Pathfinder 1 game. We're playing through the Wrath of the Righteous Adventure Path. And my, my guy's a, a super cool wrestling monk. He's based off of um, a famous wrestler. Oh, yeah. And um, so with the Boots of Spider Climb, now he can climb walls, get on the ceilings. He can, so he can, because you have a tax of opportunity in Pathfinder, this lets him avoid somebody he doesn't want to he doesn't need to deal with and just drop on top of somebody he does want to deal with, which is kind of cool. So, although to be honest, I have really high acrobatics, so I can usually avoid attacks opportunity anyway. 
So he's a pretty powerful character, but Joe has managed to thwart me a couple times using things like flying creatures and vampires that can just turn to mist and disappear out of my grasp. So that's been pretty cool. I'm really having a lot of fun in that game. Okay, back to Daniel. Hey, Jason. Daniel calling in on Tarzan. You know, I saw that movie when it came out, right? So I was, I was like a kid. I remember kind of liking it. That's not the one with Daryl Hannah, though, right? I like the one with Daryl Hannah better, probably because Daryl Hannah is not it. But um, if you don't go back and watch it, I saw that on uh, on one of the streaming services. Maybe I'll take a look and I'll, I'll, I'll call back with my answer there. I, I do like Tarzan. I, I like Burroughs' writing. I, it's very serialized and very action-packed, so I've enjoyed, you know, putting them in, obviously, like you say, this colonialism and a lot of other things going on there. But I think as adventure stories, I think a lot of the Tarzan stories are pretty good. So... Um, yeah, it's funny. I was just watching a uh, uh, like a YouTube video about like the very first Tarzan movie, or, what, or one of the first ones, uh, or the most expensive one, or whatever it was. It was like from 1908 or something, and they were talking about most expensive at the time, I should say. And they were just talking about it. It was really interesting um, about all that went into Tarzan and that and that. And I had to look it up, which is kind of a little weird fact here that Tarzan themselves, because of when they were created, is in the public domain. However. The Edgar Rice Burroughs uh, family or whatever, they trademarked the word Tarzan. So while the stories themselves are in the public domain, you can't actually use the word Tarzan without, using, without getting the permission. You know, which is fine. That's a whole other conversation. But I just thought that was kind of interesting. Same is true, by the way, with uh, John Carter of Mars. Hey, Daniel. I think you're thinking of Tarzan the Ape Man with Bo Derek. Um, not Daryl Hannah. Um, that's the one where Bo Derek's nude through like a bunch of the movie. Miles O'Keefe as Tarzan. Um, widely regarded as one of the worst movies ever made. Even the animals give poor performances, <laughs> according to the reviews. Um, I think that might be the one you're remembering. I'm not positive. I don't remember Bo Derek. Or, darn it. I do remember Bo Derek, especially from that movie. I, I don't remember Daryl Hanna, Hannah in a Tarzan movie, but I could be mistaken. Um, yeah, you, you know, it's interesting. At one time, I don't know if it's still true, but at one time, there were more Tarzan... Of all the movies, of all the serialized movies, of all the movies, you know, with sequels and things like that, um, there were more Tarzan movies than any other property, right? So Tarzan, of all the... Um, I'm brain farting now. But when you look at, like, James Bond and Godzilla and all these other things, Tarzan had more movies than anything else. Um of all the, um, somebody call in and tell me the word I'm trying to say here, but, which is interesting. And yeah, there are bad things, there are some bad things in Tarzan, definitely things of their time, ideas of their time, no, nobody's arguing any of that, but there are some interesting things in, in the mythology, and especially in the books, right? Because in the books, you know, he goes into Hollow Earth and, and does other cool things, so Tarzan's an interesting character, and I do like as I said, I do like what they did with Greystoke. I think it was a perfect origin story, but it was never followed up with a, um, you know, it was never followed up with a another movie, which is sad, because I, I thought he was pretty good as Tarzan, to be honest, and I thought he would have been good, because he's led plenty of action movies, you, you know, um, and, and I, you know, Christopher Lambeau, or I'm probably mis mispronouncing his name, but he's done plenty of action, and, and he definitely could have led a, a great Tarzan, you know, 
action series. So the first Tarzan movie, as far as I can tell, is Tarzan of the Apes, a 1918 adaption with Elmo Lincoln and um, Enid Markey. And it looks like the budget, at, no, that's a box office. The box office was $1.5 million. Um, doo, doo, doo. I'm looking through Wikipedia while you guys are listening, which is not very fun. Um, it, oh, it is one of the first films to feature a named actor in a nude scene because he plays young Tarzan in the nude. Um, there you go. So, anyhow, it also has female toplessness in there. Um, so go check that out, folks. I have not seen this 1918 Tarzan of the Apes. I will go check it out and, and watch it for scientific research for the program. Um, but, yeah, I... You know, a lot of the Tozans, Tarzan movies, especially like um, in, in like 50s, 60s, the 40s, you know, a lot of those really are, are more kind of just silly, fun kind of things. And, and those are really, those, those mid-years are really where you get stuck in a lot of the, the colonialism and the cliches and, and things like that. And, and, you know, with off, definitely off-brand now, racial humor, things like that, which don't need to be in there, to be honest. Um, and that's not, but, you, you know, when we think of those Tarzan movies and you got the, how, you know, the, the Tarzan yell and all that kind of thing. But I, I think some of the newer ones interesting. The newest one, The Legend of Tarzan, that had um, Alexander Skarsgård in there. Uh, now, we know Joe over Hindsightless has a blood feud with the Skarsgård family due to um, the pending Crow remake, but that said, I, I thought that was interesting with Margot Robbie as Jane. It, it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't horrible, I, I didn't think. Um, I don't know. I, I'm interested to see if we see new things with the character. Um, and yeah, copyright law is weird. I don't, I don't have a whole lot more to say about that. <laughs> Okay, let's go to Daniel's next call. Hey, Jason. Daniel from Bandits Keep Calling In. I, um, I guess I'm going to... I do the thing that I haven't done in a while. I'm calling in the middle of you talking, but uh, you had the new caller, Sam, talking about the, the deadly news of the games. Although, interestingly enough, I've already listened to Carl's response. But anyways, it made me think, because I, I haven't played the games, obviously, so I'm not talking about those games, but there's kind of a couple of different, or maybe three different ways that we can look at things, right? If you want the player characters to have a chance to survive, you have to either give them the ability to take multiple hits, whether that's realistic or not, or make it harder to hit them. If you don't do that, then you end up with basically a miniatures game, right? In a miniatures game where you're running a squad of 15 guys, it doesn't matter that you roll a handful of D6s and two drop, right? But when you are playing a role-playing game, where you're trying to take on the role of a character and actually have some kind of consistency, you do want your characters to have some chance to survive, right? So to make it so that guns are as deadly as maybe they should be, right? And also, people being very accurate might not be a good combination to get long-term, you know, character growth, let's say. So I think a lot of games, a lot of games that, that I've seen, lean towards the, well, we feel better when we hit, so... Let's make it easy enough to hit things, but we'll give people more hit points or more resistance to it, or however you want to say it, so that if they are hit, they don't always, let's say, go down. So that that's kind of, uh, you know, I guess three philosophies of looking at that. And I'm, I'm curious what people think about that. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't really favor one over the other, but I can say that I, I don't want to play in the game 
and I am a hardcore OSR guy. If you want to take that, not hardcore in like a I only play OSR, but I play OD and D as you know. So for anybody who's gonna who hasn't had me heard me call in before and tell me that I'm a five E player or whatever, you know, I don't want my characters to die all the time, and I don't want my players' characters to die all the time. I think that a game that you have a chance to survive longer is going to be more apt to build a campaign. So there's got to be a compromise. So I, I'm, I don't know what to do in a modern game. You know, guns are deadly, right? But I do know that in Cyberpunk 2020, you shoot them in the knees. Hey, Daniel, I'm glad that you paid attention when I ran Cyberpunk 2020. Yes, knee shots are great. Headshots also are great because they do double damage. I think modern campaigns really are tough because you have to decide, do you want simulation or do you want... Because, let's face it, real life, gunfights are deadly. Nobody wants to get in a gunfight in real life. Take your most trained person on, you, you know, FBI, HRT members to LA SWAT members to, you know, U.S. military, Delta Force, whatever, British SAS. They don't want to get in a gunfight because they know any bloke who's never picked up a gun before can get lucky and kill him with one shot, you, you know? Um, real life gunfights are deadly. So do you do that simulation or do you do the cinematic thing? And I think your group has to decide, do you want to be simulationist or cinematic or where on that scale you're going to fall prior to even picking the rule system? Some rules, you can change the dials to make it fit. But really, I think you need to under you need to pick what, what tone your game is going to be before you pick the rules, right? I'm reading a, a new to me game right now, this came out in 2009, called Terror Network. It's by Bedrock Games, and it's made for modern-day counterterrorism kind of stuff. And it veers more on the simulation side. Well, that's not true. It, it's actually, what's funny, it's not simulate. I'm going to do a System Sunday on this. It's actually a fairly light game where the rules kind of get out of your way, but it's definitely more on the gritty side, right? Well, let me read you this paragraph. High-octane campaigns. Terror Network is a realistic and gritty game but with some minor alterations it can be used for other modes of play. If you want to crank up the intensity a bit or play in the style of a modern thriller, high-octane campaigns are a good option. In high-octane campaigns, it takes five wounds to incapacitate a player character and one wound to incapacitate an NPC. This allows for larger-than-life heroes, explosive action scenes, and a starker setting. Use the high-octane character sheet for high-octane campaigns. So basically, it turns most of the NPCs into mooks. Obviously, you'd have major villains that are built like the PCs. Um, like I say, I'll do a full review of this system down the road. It's interesting. They have Terror Network, Crime Network, which lets you play mafiosos, right? Goodfellas, all that kind of thing. And then they also have Horror... It's called Horror Show, but it uses that same kind of network system modified to do horror games. So I'll be talking talking about all these games and some others by Bedrock Games in the future. Um, but yeah, I, I think the bottom line is you have to decide what tone your modern game is going to be and then find the rules that work for your group. Okay, folks, we only have one more call. So that's pretty much the show. Before we go to our last call, and you're going to understand when you listen to that call why it's at the end, but... I want to say thank you so much again to Jason Hobbs for coming on the show, for sponsoring the Fantasy Weapon Contest. Thank you for everybody that entered that contest. Thank you to all my callers today. I really appreciate all that feedback. Thank you to the listeners. Um, I did have a listener reach out about the Vulcan Diaries, and I 
we'll include that in a future episode, but I just ran out of time here. <laughs> so not on System Sunday, but my episode next week, we'll have a segment for the Vulcan Diaries because I have it's been a little bit warmer and I have been riding the bike. So look forward to that next week. Um, thank you to Ray Otis for the Coffee Cup Clip Art, TJ Drennan for the music, both the theme song, the opening ending music, the transitions, all the music you heard today is TJ Drennan. Excellent, excellent, very, very talented person. Um, and yeah, I think all that's left to say before I play this final message is be excellent to each other. Hey, Jason, this is Carl calling. And I guess I'm the closer. I guess I've given the last talk without comment on a couple of your podcasts recently, and which is really cool. I do want to echo, and I am remiss in calling you back for the Boot Hill game, which I really enjoyed um, playing my character and really getting into it had a great supporting cast and a really good GM and yourself, uh, Joe and Joe, uh, the, the double Joes, the double J's. And uh, we had a good time. Definitely a very lethal, very tense game, which I enjoy because the uh, last two times I played in a Western game of your making, I my character was killed. So this time I survived, which is a, a bonus, right? So anyway, um, thanks for that game. Uh, thanks for uh, putting my long messages which is kind of fun. Anyway, I will talk to you soon. And remember, folks, if you sent a call in to Jason and you haven't heard it on this episode, have no fear. It will appear. Joke about your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head, and the only question left is if I could see him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. There is a dustman in your oil spot, a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away. Don't look away. Don't look away. Don't look away. Well, the zombies are rising and the world's gone to hell.